Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, we'll be beginning, I guess, Series 5 of this podcast, where we'll be looking at the stories that Lovecraft uh, wrote and published between 1925 until 1929. So it's uh, really going to be a busy time for us. we got a lot of stories to go through, and several of these stories are long, so they're kind of worthy of of multiple episodes, I would think. Uh, we also have five revisions uh, published during this period, including uh, one of the, the, the Zelia Bishop uh, revisions, which are important. So there'll be one more set. I'll go back to do letters after that. Um, and then there'll be one more set of stories as we kind of wrap up this podcast. But I was adding up the episodes. Um, if you include... Uh, the third, fourth, and hopefully the fifth volume of the Selected Letters, the Robert E. Howard Letters, um, plus the rest of the stories and revisions that are left. We're still looking at like 90 or so episodes for, for me to get through all that. But I'll let you know what's coming up in this series uh, first. So uh, we got a lot of great stuff. The Horror at Red Hook. He. Cool Air. In the Vault, which is kind of a comedy story, uh, kind of an, an anomaly uh, in Lovecraft's writing from this time. We got The Call of Cthulhu, The Silver Key, uh, a wonderful dreamland story, Strange High House in the Mist, Pikmin's Model. Uh, we got a, a short little, I think it's almost a fragment called The Descendants. Then we have his two novels, uh, The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Each of those will be four or five episodes long for me to cover. We then got The Color Out of Space. Uh, the Dunwich Horror. Uh, and then we have three little shorter pieces. One uh, is the history of the Necronomicon. Another is Ibid, which is kind of a satirical piece about footnotes. And then we got his Roman Dream, which I promised to look at in more detail as a story when we're look when he came across in the letters. Those I might cram together into one episode. I'm not sure. At least history of the Necronomicon and Ibid, maybe. They're both further short. Uh, then we have five revisions, uh, the two black bottles, uh, the thing in the moonlight, the last test, the electric execution, and the curse of Yig. So that'll bring us right up to 1930. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, altogether, I'm thinking about 24, 23, 24 episodes to cover all that material. All right, so that's that's my introduction to the Zig series. I hope you'll bear with me as I go through it all. Um, I think we're all kind of excited too to get away from those letters for a little bit, to get away from um, some of his nonfiction writing and to get back into the stories. I think that's, that's, that's what we, we come to Lovecraft for, is the, is the great stories. Although a lot of the research likes to dwell into the letters because you know the stories only get you so far, but, but I think we all love the stories no matter what, right? That's why he's going to endure. Um, so, uh, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to look at the horror at Red Hook, at least half of it. We'll see how far I can get into it. It's, it's actually shorter than The Shunned House, which I did in one episode, but it's like there's so much going on in the horror at Red Hook that it's, it maybe is worthy of a longer conversation. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, I think there's two themes to really that we come to, and I think they come together so well in this story. Now, typically the story is... Sometimes condemned. I, I like it quite a lot, but it's often condemned because it's so overtly racist. It, it's, it's along with the street often seen as one of his most racist, overtly racist stories. And that's that's tough to deny. Um, or at least it's the most anti-immigrant story. I, I think there are 
more vile bits in other stories. Um, but as a whole, this this story has page after page of rants about uh, about immigrants. But he can he, he connects that theme to something else we've been talking a lot about. Actually, two things. I'll add a third. Uh, two other things we've been talking a lot about. And that one would be vernacular traditions, underground networks of knowledge, um, the stuff that we see in books like The Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker, a book I very much love, talked about many times on this podcast because I think it, it synergizes so well with what Lovecraft is writing about. Um, and then here we see really the clear connection of how these networks are sustained and cross the Atlantic and, and how they are part of this kind of dubious underclass uh, and that, that close relationship between the underclass and the cultists which we see, of course, also in The Call of Cthulhu, maybe, maybe more famously in that story. But in The Horror at Red Hook, it's really clear that these things are attached. And then the other thing you see here is, is forgetting. It's also a story about the necessity to forget. Um, you know, we, we've seen before how sites of horror must be destroyed. Uh, that was the case in The Lurking Fear. Not so much in The Shunned House, because the evil sort of got purged in that one. But uh, where else? I think... The, the one with the old man, right? The, the picture in the wall, the picture in the house. That one, also you have the destruction. And then later on, we have it with the Call of Cthulhu. Certainly we have it with Innsmouth, most famously, right? Where the whole opening of that story is about how this whole town had to be eradicated, wiped out of existence, you know, for, to, to destroy this. So these are all related. I mean, immigrants, networks of knowledge and forgetting, they're all related. But it gets to the heart of Lovecraft's overall fear of of the of of working people and and especially immigrants and his fear of untamed uncontrolled knowledge right knowledge that's not i mean if it's in the necronomicon at least uh you know the professor the librarian can lock it up right or at least it can be translated or it could be in a different language that people can't read it's somewhat more protected but once knowledge is in the people then it's it's it can't be controlled or contained in any way and that's really a major theme of i think most of his later works uh many of his later works anyways not all of them but it comes up again and again certainly in Innsmouth, certainly in this certainly in the call of cthulhu uh whisper in darkness has a little bit of this as well and there's cultists in the whisper in darkness i think people often forget that uh when, when kind of thinking back on that story, but that's also a story with an active cultist element. But anyways, I, I do think this is the best story that kind of combines these themes together. I've recently talked about um, the horror at Roadhook as a guest on SFF Audio, that great podcast. Uh, do listen to that podcast. If I mean, if you listen to this one, you probably are aware of that one as well. I mean, uh, they've, they've done a lot to kind of get my name out there a little bit. As, as as someone doing podcasts on Philip Dick and, and Lovecraft and other things, so, uh, but and I think that episode was just recently put up, so uh, or not that not long before this episode's coming up. So do uh, do check that out as well. I I'll, I'll, you'll get a little bit more of depth of of what I was saying in that episode, but in those episodes you're always talking with other people, so maybe we don't get. Uh, all of my thoughts about it in a, in a form, format like that, but we get, we'll get a lot of them in, in shorter form, I guess. Um, so anyways, this story begins with uh, an, 
a, a reference to Arthur Macon. It's actually a quote from The Red Hand, uh, a novel by or story by Arthur Macon. And that is, there are sacraments of evil as well as good about us, and we live and move, to my belief, in an unknown world, a place where there are caves and shadows and dwellers in twilight. It's possible that man may sometimes return on the track of evolution. It's my belief that an awful lore is not yet dead. So here we have several themes that are going to come up in the story. One is like the lore never dies. The lore is always there. It's always surviving uh, like like rats in the wall or like maggots and, you know, under the surface of you know, under the ground or whatever, or the, the root system of a tree that you cut down. They're always there. They're always going to survive. Right. But we also got this subtle suggestion here of New York City, the place where there are caves and shadows and dwellers in twilight. Doesn't sound like he's talking about a city, but as you get into the story, you realize when Lovecraft thinks that way, that's how he thinks about New York. Right. And we know Lovecraft's feelings about New York. I talked about them endlessly in when I looked at the second volume of the Selected Letters. He kept coming back to his New York experience. Of course, those letters open up with him in New York um, and, and kind of struggling with his time there. And he had a lot of antipathy towards New York, to be sure. And it comes across stronger in this piece than any other, except maybe for he. He also does this, but in a, in a very different way. I think he is a little bit more subtle in its disgust for New York than this one. But certainly no other work is as deeply his New York story. I guess. Uh, so that's what he's, I think he's using this making quote because it really does fit to some of the themes he's trying to get at. So I want to start us by, by reading a little bit of what I've written previously about the horror at Red Hook. Several years ago when I wrote my article um, called uh, In Praise of the Innsmouth Look, uh, which is all about some of these same themes. Uh, I'm still working on kind of transforming this essay into a book-length uh, work. But, you know, my, I'm kind of a slowpoke when it comes to scholarship. So, anyways, um, these podcasts are a lot easier than actually writing academic uh published works um so i i start out here i compare it to call of cthulhu written around the same time uh, call of cthulhu's global horror at red hook is much more parochial um in its setting even though it's got that same kind of global backdrop so the story opens with police detective thomas f malone in rhode island malone faints for an unknown reason while walking past a building uh, malone is from an irish immigrant family it's revealed that his fainting was due to a panic attack apparently caused by memories of a similar building in New York where Malone took part in a raid. Malone is first described as, quote, large, robust, normal feature, and capable looking. To this list is added later, uh, Dauntless Fighter. This makes his collapse seem out of place and juxtaposes him with the forces he struggled with in New York. Quote, what could he tell the prosaic of the antique witcheries and grotesque marvels discernible to sensitive eyes amid the poison cauldron where all the very dregs of wholesome ages mix their venom and perpetuate their obscene terrors. As the story unfolds, we learn more of the differences between Malone and his enemies. Most importantly, Malone is the epitome of whiteness and his enemies are multiracial immigrants and participants in evil or illicit rituals. In the second part of the story, the contrast is richly, richly detailed. We learn that Malone is curious about the occult since his youth, which involved reading texts about witchcraft and studying anthropology. These studies taught Malone that modern people under lawless conditions tend uncannily to repeat the darkest instinctive patterns of primitive half-ape savagery in their daily life and ritual observances. 
Most of this section, however, is devoted to a description of Red Hook neighborhood. Lovecraft describes few monsters with as much detail. And here I'm going to quote, give you a long quote of, of Lovecraft writing about Red Hook. Red Hook is a maze of hybrid squalor near the ancient waterfront opposite Governor's Island, with dirty highways climbing the hills from wharfs that higher ground that the higher ground where the decaying length of Clinton and Court Street lead off towards the borough halls. Its houses are mostly of brick, dating from the first quarter to the middle of the 19th century, and some of the obscure alleys and byways have that alluring antique flavor which conventional reading lends us to call Dickensian. The population is a hopeless tangle and enigma. Syrian, Spanish, Italian, and Negro elements impinging on one another, and fragments of Scandinavian and American belts lying not far distance. It is a babble of sound and filth, and sends out strange cries to answer the lapping of oily waves at the grimy piers and the monstrous organ litanies of the harbor whistles. From this tangle of material and spiritual putrescence, the blasphemies of a hundred dialects assail the sky. Hordes of prowlers reel shouting and singing along the lanes and thoroughfares. Occasionally furtive hands suddenly extinguish lights and pull down curtains, and swarthy, sin-pitted faces disappear from windows when visitors pick their way through. Policemen despair of order and reform and seek rather to erect barriers, protecting the outside world from the contagion. Visible offenses are as varied as local dialects and run the gamut from the smuggling of rum and prohibitive aliens through diverse stages of lawlessness and obscure vice to murder and mutilation in the most abhorrent guises. So uh, that's that long quote. Um, and I continue to write, Red Hook is new, dating only from the 19th century, but dilapidated due to misuse and neglect. It's highly international, racially mixed, deviant and criminal, and neglected by all but a few unlucky travelers. The police ignore Red Hook, seeing it as a lost community. Malone reports that the people of Red Hook are participants in shocking and primordial traditions. The formula is clear. Interracial or international means degenerative and fallen. Degeneration and decline leads to neglect and an eagerness to embrace strange traditions. When we meet Robert Sidon, we're confronted with the contradiction that Lovecraft can never quite resolve. All white Americans have their roots in the sea, yet the elements most threatening to white American civilization also come from the sea, African Americans and new immigrants of the late 19th and early 20th century. Sidon was old and from an old Dutch family. Like Malone, he was interested in ancient traditions, but was much more of a participant than the police detective. This curiosity begins to transform Sidon into someone closer to an inhabitant of Red Hook. He had been growing shabbier and shabbier with the years, and now prowled about like a veritable mendicant, seen occasionally by humiliated friends in subway stations or loitering on the beaches around Burrow Hill in conversation with groups of swarthy, evil-looking strangers. Sidon is seduced by imported and ancient cults. If in Red Hook, the path towards these cults is natural, a seeming inevitable process due to their polyglot and racially mixed backgrounds, Sidon is brought towards the sword of the elements through study. Both paths are narratives of decline, but they're distinct paths that seem to cross in Red Hook. Malone begins investigating Sidon because of his association with the blackest and most vicious criminals of Red Hook's devious lanes. Malone was particularly interested in Sidon's links with smugglers who specialize in illegal immigration. The police departments became interested in Red Hook and Sidem as a possible means of breaking up these criminal gangs and of deporting unwanted elements. In the investigation, Malone learns of Sidem's relationship to the immigrant Kurds. Kurdish population of dockhands and unlicensed peddlers. Like other immigrant groups, these Kurds are tied to ancient and forbidden religions, attracted by a belief that they'll gain supernatural powers. 
The investigation begins to fall apart because of Sidon's transformation into a more respected member of the community. He stops visiting Red Hook, starts to look younger and more dis less disheveled, and is engaged to be married. Around the same time, the investigation into the wave of kidnappings that affected Red Hook hits a dead end when a raid on a dance hall finds only strange inscriptions in ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic, as well as a handful of squinting Orientals. Sidem's marriage is short-lived. Not long after they leave on an ocean liner, Sidem's wife is found strangled by inhuman hands. Back in port, a horde of swarth, insolent ruffians, including an Arab with a hateful negroid mouth, quote, who bears a note in Sidem's hand urging them to surrender Sidem's body. After a prolonged period with Sidem or his dead body, it's not clear when he is dead, the group leaves. Doctors later find Mrs. Sidem's body drained of blood. After this, Malone returns to his investigation of Sidon and his operations in Red Hook. The disappearances of blue-eyed Norwegians lead him to Sidon's apartment. In the basement, a, a, a falls unconscious. He falls unconscious. He dreams, or more likely tries to convince himself he was dreaming of a ritual in the crypts he finds beneath Sidon's flat. It's a ritual characterized by Dionysian freedom and religious and racial intermixing. Quote, Avenues of limitless night seemed to radiate in every direction, till one might fancy that here lay the root of a contagion destined to sicken and swallow cities and engulf nations in the foiter of hybrid pestilence. Here cosmic sin is entered, and festered by unhallowed rites, had commenced the grinning march of death that was to rob us all to fungous abnormalities too hideous for the grave holdings. Graves holdings. Moloch and Astrototh were not absent, for in this quite quintessence of all the damnation, the bounds of consciousness were let down, and man's fancy lay open vistas of every realm and horror, of every forbidden dimension that evil has power to mold. End quote. The ritual concludes with the reanimated corpse of Sidon pushing over a ritual pedestal and apparently causing the collapse of the entire crypt. Other police officers arrive, and the facts of the case are clarified. Sidon's body was brought back to his home from the ocean liner. His home had been used as a base of operations in the human smuggling operation that Malone was investigating. The kidnappings were also traced to Sidon's homes. Various members of the cult are deported or imprisoned. Malone retires to Rhode Island, but the cult and its beliefs could not be repressed. The narrator concludes, Who are we to combat poisons older than the history of mankind? Apes danced in Asia to these horrors, and the cancer lurks secure and spreading, where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. The horror at Red Hook is far more complex in its racial imagination than is often acknowledged. Certainly Lovecraft had a blanket attitude of contempt for immigrants and their communities. His racialized language takes up much of the story. The most interesting aspects of his racial imagination is his connection between internationalism and religious heterodoxy. Such fears were not unknown in 1920s America, where Jews and Italians faced discrimination for their introduction of minority religions into the United States. At one level, Lovecraft seems to be protesting the gathering of any group of non-whites. In his imagination, any community, including dance halls and businesses, popular among immigrants is likely to host these types of strange cults. What the racial others and the swarthy immigrant masses have in this tale is a deeper relationship to the past, a deep desire for freedom, however loosely defined, and the ability to attract the attention and curiosity of others. Sidehem and Malone both express intellectual curiosity about the religion and traditions that immigrants have brought with them, but Malone learns to fear them while Sidehem embraces them. Neither, however, are members of the new immigrant communities, so their attractions seem out of place in the story. They are, as were all white Americans, tied to immigrant communities. It is even suggested that Malone has 
peculiar relationship to the cult due to his Irish heritage. Sidehem's story suggests that the line between the foreigner and the native was not very thick and often permeable. Even someone as deeply rooted in New York as a member of the established Dutch family entered into the seductions of the occult. In the horror at Red Hook, Lovecraft was facing an Atlantic cross current that created New York City. By centering the cult within the networks of maritime workers, immigrants, and stevedores from a dozen nations, he established the sea as a fearful place. And not only because it was home to bizarre creatures. More important than sea creatures is the mobile population of migrants and sailors who bring with them the ideas of long, for, long forgotten in a frontier society and who refuse to bind themselves to a single well-regulated tradition. Immigrants are like the sea. Part of their incomprehensibility is in their liquidity and their ability to merge, shift, meld, and dissolve. And like the sea, these characters make it impossible for the cults to be permanently suppressed. At the conclusion of the tale, Malone learns of the cult's spread to, new, to his new home in Rhode Island. Tied to this world by the oceans, no police investigation or quarantine can isolate or contain Red Hook. Um, so that's my thoughts on Red Hook. I conclude here with a little bit of a pulling together different threads here. Um, tying Red Hook to more of Lovecraft's other writings. So I'll read that too. In Lovecraft's imagination, maritime workers and immigrants pose threats on several levels. They maintain illicit and dangerous religious traditions that are often anonymous and difficult to control. When such people do form maritime communities, such as the New Orleans cult Innsmouth, the Red Hook cultists, or Kingsport, they be bring with them traditions from the sea. What makes the most dangerous is their fundamental worldliness and their desire for happiness, joy, and fulfillment in this world. In this way, they reflect some of the most radical religious traditions of Atlantic history, which balk at the Christian tradition and its belief that working people should suffer in this world as a down payment on eternal life in the next. The sailor villain can only be suppressed locally, as in the case of the Cthulhu cultist broken up by Inspector Legrasse. The desire for freedom is more universal, especially among the most excluded. It is these excluded who appear more conspicuously in the dark corners of Lovecraft's fiction. However, this freedom often offers a false promise. As a sort of payment for their flirtation with the occult, sailors and other people of the sea, including immigrants, often become victims of seeming and unstoppable evils. So that's, I think it sums up what I want to say about the story in, in 20 minutes. Uh, less than that, I guess. 15, however long it took me to read that. But it also, I think, summarizes kind of what the story is. Uh, there's a few elements I maybe didn't mention in that because I had to be as concise as possible for that article. But of course, like what the cult is, it's, it's, it's apparently the cult of Lilith or it's somewhat connected to Lilith. That's not very important. What's important is that this cult is primordial and deep and tied together by these vernacular networks of, of knowledge. Um, you know... The contrast of the whiteness of Sidem and Malone with the immigrant communities, of course, is strong. But the fact that both of those people were infected, if you were, with the occult, I think, is what is so fearful for Lovecraft. It's one thing if it's just the immigrants, right? It never is. It always kind of filters in. It drains in. It's, it's permeable boundaries. Um, it's like water. It's liquid, right? And, you know, water always gets in. Water always finds a way to get where it wants to go. And that is, is, you know, part of the, 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 the hydraulic theory of, of Lovecraft's work. Something I've been going, another theme I'm going back to a lot here is the sea, right? You might open this and say, well, this doesn't seem to be a story about the sea, but it absolutely is. I mean, the sea is everywhere here. It's not just in that, that yacht that, where the Mrs. Sidem's body's found and, and all that stuff. It's, 
the whole New York itself is is hydraulic <laughs> in that it you know the people come from the sea that it's it's an immigrant community so um, there's actually suggestions of human trafficking like right directly kidnapping and there, there there we get the blood libel I think I didn't even mention that maybe I didn't think of it when I wrote it I certainly think about it now that cite him is I'm not sure is that a Jewish name is there a suggestion of I don't think there's a suggestion of of Jewishness but you know this robbing and kidnapping of children for occult purposes is exactly what the blood libel was when it, of course that was targeting Jews um, way back since the Middle Ages so anyways again a very very it's actually a fairly short story that's one more thing I want to say before maybe jumping into this a little bit more so very very short story it I when I went back to it a few months ago for the rereading for the SFF audio podcast and I saw like the audiobook was only a, like one hour long I'm like no that can't be like it's part one or something I really believe the story was like longer not as long as like case of Charles Dexter Ward or something but I was thinking maybe two hours because there's so much going on it's so like packed but it's actually a fairly short story I'll probably end up saying more in terms of length about this story than if you were just to like listen to it or, or read it yourself and I apologize for that but that's that's the way it is I'm already at no what 26 minutes and and, uh, and I haven't even really got into it so what am I going to do here I, obviously at this point I'm not going to try to finish this whole story I'll do parts one and two uh, then sign off and I'll come back in the next episode uh, maybe tomorrow and record my thoughts on parts uh, three through seven it's in seven chapters all right so the, the story begins with uh like present day the whole story is like a flashback uh to malone's uh investigation so he's at malone's now in rhode island and he is this very bulky strong irish cop image so his fainting spell which he experiences just by walking past a building I think is is contrasted here it's like this guy is supposed to you know I mean Lovecraft has people fainting all the time but it's more of like a, a Robert E Howard vision of masculinity than the typical Lovecraftian vision of masculinity I mean this guy is really buff he's not like the nerdy scholar even though he does he does dabble in the occult he's interested in it and that doesn't really necessarily go as far as one may like I think it makes him it shows him as like psychologically sensitive so he's a little bit open to in his investigation to seeing something deeper than what the normal cop who just looks at what's in front of him what he can't see beyond his nose those kinds of cops are the ones who just stare at the same clue all day what's that it's from the wire right this where bunk is giving uh what's her name the uh, i forget i forget her name but the the other the other character, the, the female detective who joins Homicide, and he gives her the advice and says, you know, you can't just stare at the same piece of grass all day. You'll never solve, solve the crimes, right? But that's, you know, how a lot of cops operate, I think. Um, and he's not that way. He's a little bit more open-minded. Malone, I mean, he's a little bit more open-minded and sensitive. But he was a New York cop who, who ended up kind of exiled to Rhode Island, living as a border you know doing day labor things like that so he's, he seems to be like a washed up cop but he's he walks by this brick building and this causes him to have his panic attack so then we learn right away like the what was in his background 
and it's 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 just what's sort of known. He, the details come later, but what's known at this time is it was kind of a local ca- celebrity case. It was kind of locally dramatic. Uh, there had been a collapse of several old brick buildings during a raid, which he shared, and something about a wholesome loss of life, both of prisoners and his companions, had peculiarly appalled him. So as a result, he had quite an acute and anomalous horror of any buildings, even remotely suggesting the ones that had fallen in. End quote. Now, I, I think there's more to this. I think... Now, on the surface, just, he saw the same buildings, like the Red Hook buildings, you know, which, of course, Lovecraft described in his letters and in the story uh, a certain way. And he just sees the same building and he has like a PTSD uh, breakdown. I think it's more than that. I think he, he sees something that suggests this cult has kind of spread. The seeds have been planted somewhere else in Rhode Island now. And it's just kind of creeping on him. And of course, Rhode Island being where, where Lovecraft is, right? This is in Pascog, Rhode Island, which um, I'm not sure how far it is from Providence, but Rhode Island's not big, so it's close enough. Too close for comfort, right? Now, I'll bear in mind that we saw in his letters, Lovecraft letters, that there was a anxiety over kind of the spread of Red Hook to Rhode Island. I mean, this is something he actually talked about. He, he of course, idealized Providence, but when he went back, he started doing a lot of these walking tours and seeing parts of Providence he didn't notice before. And he sees, oh, there's immigrants here too, or this kind of reminds me of, of Brooklyn. And so that's part of Lovecraft's thinking uh, when, after he returns to Providence. It's not that Providence is 100% this uh, perfect place, right? He realizes it's also on the stage, same level of decadence as the rest of the country, or at least it's on the same path of decadence as the rest of the country. So I, that, I really think that's what's going on here. Now, we get this gossip right away, which is another... Whenever we, we read these stories and you think of gossip or, or rumors, that's very much a Lovecraftian trope of, of like these, again, these vernacular traditions, these people on the ground, the, the working class people who are carrying on through the grapevine telegraph, their interpretations of history, their, inter- you know, their memories of the past. And with that comes knowledge of these occult things. So whenever there's gossip, it's, it's a little bit of a freaky thing for, for Lovecraft. Right. So some of this gossip is about what he went through. Right. And that there was maybe something else going on there with this collapse of, of the buildings. So then uh, as part one goes on. Um, we're, we're, we're told that Malone, although he does have this kind of brute, big Irish cop kind of look to him. He's actually a very sensitive, imaginative, open minded person who is capable of experiencing horror. And here we get actually something that's almost a paraphrase of supernatural horror in literature. He writes, Lovecraft writes, his was a simple explanation which everyone could understand. And because Malone was not a simple person, he perceived that he had better let it suffice to hint to unimaginative people of a horror beyond all human conception, a horror of houses and blocks and cities leprous and cancerous with evils dragged from elder worlds would be merely to invite a padded style instead of restful rustication. Now, I don't hate cities. I, I, I prefer the countryside myself, and that's where I'd like to retire to, you know. But, you know, I meet people who think, like, like I live in Hangzhou, and I, I've met people who, would th- who think you are insane to not want to live in a place like Hangzhou or not, or not want to live in this city. 
You know, to even say you want to go in the countryside, it's like you're almost crazy to have those beliefs, right? And I think that's kind of Malone's point of view. It's like, or Lovecraft's overall view here. And you see this in his letters too, where his friends are like, New York's not that bad, and Lovecraft writes back, you don't know, or something. And he'll tell some story about something that happened to him, or the sounds and the smells he hears in his apartment at night, or the fact that someone came in and stole his clothes, or whatever it might be, that put him off New York. Like, he knows something. That's the... That's the subtext there. And you just don't see it. You don't know. Right? And it's just, it's just a different point of view about the city and about place and, and about geography. But I think that's, a, that's, that's drawn from life. It's not something Lovecraft's totally here making up. Um, and he, the, being the sensitive type Malone and Lovecraft and us, uh, are more capable of seeing in the buildings of the city, the stuff that kind of freak us out. Now, getting into uh, Malone's background, we're also taught, told that he's interested in the occult. And, you know, it seems it comes from his Irish background. There's a suggestion here that, like, if he was not Irish, he wouldn't have had this interest. This is how it's written. Um, Malone was a man of sense despite his mysticism. He had the Celt's far vision of weird and hidden things, but the logician's quick eye for the outwardly unconvincing, an amalgam which led him far afield in his 42 years of life and set him in strange places for a Dublin University man born in a Georgian villa near Phoenix Park. So he comes from, he's also an immigrant, I guess, but he's, yeah, I guess that's something I, I need to maybe reconsider when I think about this. Because I, I do get the sense Malone is, he's not Anglo, obviously, but he's of kind of civilization, you know, as opposed to these other more recent immigrants. And this is, the port, of course, something that was going on in America as with these new immigrants came in. Older immigrants like the Germans, particularly the Irish, they got kind of reconsidered in terms of their whiteness, right? I, I urge you to read, I think his name is Nolan Nocte's book, how the Irish became white or any of the other books about American whiteness and, and to, to be reminded that it didn't like what white means now is not what, or what it meant in 1920 is not what it meant maybe in 1850, you know, where Irish were not really generally considered white. You know, it was more like this Lovecraftian idea of like the Anglo-Saxon civilization that was whiteness uh, and Irish were somehow separate from that. But later on, the Irish do become seen as white. But then you have other new immigrant groups that, you know, where their whiteness is similarly dubious. So it was a flexible liquid term itself, right? Lovecraft wouldn't agree with that. I mean, Lovecraft had firm ideas of civilizational identity, but America didn't, and, and America historically didn't. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of a complex issue here. Um, now, part one ends then with this rant about New York, and, and I don't need to repeat it at length but there's such interesting language here when he talks about new york it's some of his best stuff it's it's better than even in his letters quote malone was content to keep unshared the secret of which could reduce a dauntless fighter to a quivering neurotic what could make the old brick slums and seas of dark subtle faces a thing of nightmarish and eldritch portent it would not be the first time his sensations have been forced to bide uninterrupted for was not his very act of plunging into the polyglot abyss of New York's underworld, a freak beyond sensible explanation. Um, so, what else do we have here? Oh, a mention of quote, uh, a mention of Poe, a quote, a quote of 
a Poe. Uh, the horror as glimpsed at last could not make a story for like the book cited by Poe's German authority, Erlastik lesson. it does not permit itself to be read. Um, so th that kind of, the, the there's a bit of a wall between what can be known and what is, right? Now, obviously some people can know, Sidem can know, the immigrants seem to understand this, but from the outside observer, it's not there. And I, I think this is kind of his old view of the city too. It's like, there's something there that's off, but it can't really be read. And, and that's why he's quoting Poe here. So a really, really powerful opening to this, this story that introduces Malone, introduces a bit of a background of the, of the case he was involved in, his own occult interests. And then, you know, laying it on really thick, this narrative of New York City as this cesspool of polyglot Alexandrian, um, barbarism all right part two chapter two um so we get a, a little bit here more about about um malone's own interest in the occult and his own search for knowledge and this sort of what leads him to a curiosity about about red hook um to quote the story daily life had for him come to be a phantasmagoria of macabre shadow studies now glinting and leering with concealed rottenness as in beersley's best manner now hinting tears behind the commonest shapes and objects as in the subtlest and less obvious work of Gustave Doré. He would often regard it as merciful that the most persons of high intelligence cheer at the inmost mysteries, for he argued if superior minds were ever placed in fullest contact with the secrets preserved by ancient and lowly cults, the resultant abnormalities would soon not only wreck the world but threaten the very integrity of the universe. End quote. So he's interested in this stuff, but he's saying he's kind of warning people not a good thing to be that interested into you know actually um and then we just get a lot more of lovecraft of of red hook itself including what i quoted in my article that long description of the people of the immigrants of the races the babble of sound and filth what he would have called like an alexandrian sort of barbarism he uses actually the term alexandrian in this particular story i guess it's in a later section um, but he uses in those letters, too, to talk about America's future. So in his view, kind of Rome is good and the Alexandrian empires were bad. And, you know, it's because they were both actually really, really diverse and both Hellenistic in their own way. I, I think he's a bit idealizing Rome uh, improperly here. He doesn't really, I think, understand how just how diverse it is. But he had this idea of Rome as like a stable, pure civilization that expanded. And what Alexander did is he just kind of brought the Greeks into the East and kind of just took on those Eastern traditions uh, kind of uncritically. And you end up with this kind of uh, the breakdown of the polis and this kind of diffusion of Greek culture where it just sort of mixes with everything else. I don't know if that's fair. I mean, it's kind of ignoring how much the Romans were influenced by the Hellenistic societies. But anyways, that's, his, that's the term, terminology he often will use is Alexandrian. Now, since I already kind of read most of this, and it's just kind of more laying it on pretty thick about the, his feelings about New York, I want to instead focus on this theme of the police. So the police already know Red Hook is bad news. They make it pretty clear here. And it's it, they've turned Red Hook, and I think this is totally fiction. I can't believe this is anything based on reality. They turn it into a ghetto. They, they just block it off, almost wall it off. They, they, policemen despair, this is to quote him, policemen despair of order of reform or, or reform 
and seek rather to direct barriers protecting the outside world from the contagion. The clang of the patrol is answered by a kind of spectral silence, and such prisoners are taken are never communicative. End quote. Um, now, so there's some patrolling, there's some arresting, but there's no real effort to kind of get beyond the, the veil here. Uh, this, this, in this sense, it's not even so much about forgetting, it's this unknowability. It's kind of a deeper level uh, beyond just this need to forget. It's that it's just so unknown, so the only thing that can be done is quarantine it. Uh, at first, uh, later on, I think destruction is... Well, it does not, not really till Innsmouth that Lovecraft just says, just bomb the town, right? Move the people out, just bring the army in. You know, here, it's, there's destruction, there's a loss of life, but there's not the effort to totally eradicate um, Red Hook yet. Um, so, now, Malone is into all this. I mean, he's aware of this, and he, he's interested in it. And so he's kind of, that's what brings him to sort of investigate uh, Red Hook. And he seems to be early on aware that there's something deep and old in their perspectives. He says, they, they must be, he felt inwardly, the heirs of some shocking and primordial tradition, the shares of debased and broken scraps from cults and ceremonies older than mankind. Their coherence and definiteness suggested it and enshrone it in the spectacular suspicion of order which lurked beneath their squalid disorder. He had not read in vain such treatises as Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, and he knew that up to recent years there had certainly survived among peasants and furtive folk a frightful and clandestine system of assemblages, assemblies and orgies descended from dark religions antedating the Aryan world. So again, we get another mention of the witch cult in Western Europe. I don't know if this is the only or the first mention in, I think it's mentioned in the Call of Cthulhu too, but this might be the first mention of this in a book or in a story, but he mentions a lot in his letters. He certainly was into this story and he told other people to read it. And again, the main point of this story is these cults were real and surviving even into modern times. And they, they, they were kind of survivals of pre-Christian traditions and beliefs. And that's something that Lovecraft really was able to gravitate towards. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's part ones and two. It's, it's all setting. Part one and two is all setting. It sets up a little bit the story, but it's all about the setting. And, and that's true of most of the story. It's really about Red Hook itself and its people. And Malone is just a device to sort of get into that. But, you know, I might have some interesting things to say about Malone later on. Um, but uh, we'll get into the story more uh, in the, the next episode. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to break up this investigation of the horror at Red Hook into two parts. Um, and I'll finish it up next time. So, anyways, thanks for, for listening uh, to this episode. Thanks for joining me for uh, yet another series in this H.P. Lovecraft book club where we'll be going through the late 20 stories. Some of my favorite stuff is in this, this, this period of, of Lovecraft's writing. So I'm really excited to, to jump in to talk about these with you. So as always, uh, thanks for listening. Send me your own thoughts. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And uh, I'll be back shortly with the rest of my feelings about the horror at Red Hook. See you then.